Good day, everyone, and welcome to today's Living Life. I don't want to, you know, start you a little boring, but there is one issue, question that hangs over today's passage that I'll just kind of take care of in the introduction before I go on. And that is that this same incident, uh, is it the same one that we read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as in Jesus, you know, clearing and cleansing the temple, driving the animals out, uh, or is it a different one, or, you know, the, What's, what's going on, right? Because if you know your New Testament even just a little bit, you know that this does happen in the four books of the gospel. Uh, but in John, it seems to happen in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, whereas in the other three gospels, it happens towards the end of Jesus' ministry. Now, there are three main views. The first is that John got it wrong somehow, for some reason, uh, that he put it in the wrong place. He just got it wrong and put it in the wrong place, uh, chronologically that is. Uh, the second is that there are two different incidents, right? Some people say, why couldn't there have been two different, similar but different incidents, that he did it two times, basically. The third is kind of a merge of the two, kind of, uh, or a comp kind of a compromise, but not really, but where John intentionally put the same incident in the wrong chronological place for a reason, as I shared a couple of days ago. John wrote the book of um, John, the Gospel of John, for, with a very intentional purpose, and that is to help people believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So now, while this is not the time nor the place to go into this discussion, I will be continuing along the lines of the third option, because it makes the most sense in light of what comes before and after this incident as well. And then even with the way John focuses on a few miracles that he calls signs to make specific points rather than give a biography of Jesus. So let's read the passage and then we'll continue. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. 
Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So I'll just give one small observation uh, in support of the third view that I just told you before, that this is the same incident as in found in the other Gospels, but John intentionally put it at the beginning of Jesus' ministry for a specific reason. Uh, it's a small reason as in I would not base my thesis you know, around it or a dissertation around this or write a book or anything like that, but I find it quite interesting. So. From chapter 1 of John, uh, after the prologue, prologue, there are strategic uses of timing words at the beginning of each section. For example, chapter 1 verse 20 says, the next day. And then the next section, verse 35, the following day. And then chapter 2 verse 1, on the third day. So it's almost, you know, very intentional, very chronological, right? In the beginning, you know, next day, following day, on the third day. And it's like they're counting the days. John is counting the days. But then in today's passage, uh, chapter 2, verse 13, and then it suddenly says, when it, was, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. And then after this, if you just flip through your Bible or scroll down, from this point, the timestamps, if you want to use that phrase, becomes general and ambiguous. It's very different from the first three examples that I gave you. So I think uh, John intentionally kind of changes tact, and that's to show and to make a specific point. So in chapter 1, we see the introduction of Jesus as the Word of God. And uh, we have many titles being introduced, as I mentioned two days ago. Right? We have the Messiah, Prophet, Lamb of God, One who baptizes with the Spirit, Chosen Son of God, Rabbi, Teacher, Christ the Anointed One, um, the one who was written about, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Now, this is just like saying Jesus from Saul, or I mean, or yeah, Jesus from Saul, or Daniel from Sydney, things like that, by the way. Um, Rabbi, son of God, king of Israel, son of man, the last one being said by Jesus himself. In yesterday's passage, uh, Jesus began to further introduce and drop big hints, um, and then previewing uh, his identity and purpose. And this is only going to intensif intensify as we keep reading. And that is exactly what happens, um, what is happening in today's passage. The big picture purpose of this incident in all four of the Gospels is almost the same regardless of where you place it chronologically. The physical, the physical temple is no longer the center of worship. In fact, it's even wrong to insist on the temple as being the center of worship. And this is something of a preview that we see, uh, that we will see in John chapter 4. Because the Christ, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the Son of God has come to the world. And I mean, Jesus, you know, literally tells, you know, in today's passage, tells people of his death and resurrection, right? His hour of glorification, which people misunderstand immediately, of course. Though, being Israelites, being Jews, being religious leaders, having the scripture, they should have understood better. They should know better, way more than they did. Because in Judaism at this time, many spiritual leaders were waiting, actually, for the Messiah first, and they were waiting for a new temple to replace the current one 
that was actually being reconstructed, being rebuilt, right, by a, a foreign king, no less. And so they were, they, they were waiting for a Messiah and a new temple, and they're still waiting to this day. And Jesus is actually speaking their own language. He uses the term terminology that they should understand, but they just don't get it. These religious leaders of Israel, of the Jews, they just don't get it, as Jesus points out to Nicodemus in the next chapter. Now, it's interesting that no one argues with Jesus whether what he was doing is right or wrong. Right? No one objects, as in, oh no, you shouldn't do this. How dare you? This is against the law or that law, anything like that. And it's in a sense saying that the activity of what Jesus was doing was justified, right? Instead, they ask, you know, by whose authority? By what authority? On what basis are you doing this? In, in other words, we can easily say that people were acknowledging that the compromise of the temple was a real thing. They were acknowledging this fact and that their worship had been compromised. People's mor morality and spirituality had become muddied and shadowed by darkness, the darkness of the world. And again, something that Jesus expands to Nicodemus in chapter 3. So Jesus wants to bring people's hearts and minds, people's morality and spirituality, back from themselves and the world and the flesh back to God. And this is now more possible uh, tangibly because the Word of God has become flesh, has made flesh and has come to us. And it's similar to the question that Jesus asks Mary, his mother, in the earlier passage. What does this, as in this request that you bring to me, what does this have to do with me? Now Jesus is asking, what does this temple have to do with me? What do all these animals have to do with me? These crowds have to do with me. Does this, all of this, have anything to do with me, have anything to do with worship? It's like an action thriller blockbuster version of The Wedding at Cana, where the question remains the same, but the confrontation and the challenge uh, to us is the same, but shown in a different way. Jesus is doing all of these things, the sign and everything, because he knows people's hearts. He knows that they need to be brought back to God. It says at the end of verse 24 to 25, For he, Jesus, knew all people. This is the NLT. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. And this takes us smoothly and perfectly into his meeting with Nicodemus. God, Jesus, already knows everything in and about our hearts. So we need to also be honest with ourselves. What does our temple have to do with Jesus? Does our temple, the center of our worship, have anything to do with Jesus? Another related question is, what is your physical temple that you are basing your worship on and maybe possibly missing the Messiah when he is standing right in front of you? Even as people who say that we believe and we follow, are we missing the point? Are we basing our worship on a temple that is, you know, is a bygone, that is from way before, when you have the living Word of God before us. What does your worship have to do with Christ? Does your worship have anything to do with Christ? I think that's a very powerful question 
uh, that the scripture is asking us today. Let's pray. Uh, God, we come before you in humility, Lord. Um, and what a powerful and important reminder for us to look and reflect upon our worship, our understanding of worship, the way we worship, the center of our worship. If there is anything within us, O oh Lord, that is based on a physical temple, uh, that is based on a form or a manner or anything like that, I pray that you would lead us to repentance, O oh God. And after the repentance, to come to you in thanksgiving for sending us your Son, uh, the Son of God, the Messiah, the, the invisible made visible so that we can believe, so that we can worship in spirit and truth, worship properly. God, I pray that you would uproot uh, the, the temple, the idolatry, the forms, the icons that we may have been basing our worship on instead of the word of God. All these things we pray, Lord, with all our hearts, with humility, in Jesus' name, amen. For a single soul, reaching a further and stepping in closer. Yeah. 